Hey, Mike. Hi, Caleb. How are you? I am doing well this frosty evening. <laughs> and we're recording a little later than usual, so this is kind of uh, the Tesla show after dark. It's and, really after dark, yes. And that means we're going to be recapping season one of Westworld, the hit HBO program. We are totally changing it up. No, um, <laughs> we uh, there was some some news. Well, actually, what are you drinking tonight? Oh, right. I'm sorry. The, I jumped in. The meat. Oh, yeah. So speaking of Westworld, uh, I'm actually running late tonight. Uh, I'm the reason for the delayed recording. So I am just drinking some whiskey neat in a glass. I am drinking uh, from Westland Distillers mm. in Seattle, Washington. Uh, this is a delicious uh, single malt whiskey that they've been uh, selling recently. This is the peated version. I think they have three different versions. Uh, this okay. is the peated one, and it is uh, quite delightful. I highly recommend it. Nice. I was recently gifted an early holiday Christmas gift, and so I used some bitters, so I decided to make a Martinez. Oh, nice. So uh, some gin, maraschino, and orange bitters, and sweet vermouth. So uh, it's quite strong. Um, one quite of my favorites. Of gin. But it's good. Yeah, and it's got a nice uh, color, orangey-brown color. So <laughs> All unusual right. in a liquid beverage. So we're ready to roll here. We are. So um, I guess maybe last week or the week before, I saw some news come across that Tesla was given permission by uh, one of the counties in Virginia to open another store. And one of the things that was curious about that, and I think curious to many listeners who do not live in the U.S., is that there was any any reason Tesla couldn't open another store to uh, sell their their vehicles. And uh, Virginia had given them a lot of trouble in the past and put some restrictions on how many stores they could open. And uh, up up into this uh, this battle happening for I think it was at the state legislature to allow them to open the store, uh, dealer associations had been uh, released a funny video on on YouTube rallying the troops of all the dealerships to fight this and stop Tesla from coming <laughs> to the state and taking food off their table apparently and i mean what what red-blooded american doesn't love their local car dealership too i mean everyone has just such a fond relationship with their car dealership exactly and so uh so i thought maybe tonight we could talk a bit about um the history of of dealerships in the united states tonight's episode will be quite u.s centric because i think it's worth noting uh many of the things we'll talk about tonight do not apply elsewhere in the world uh these are quite um peculiar u.s uh laws and customs which is and not to say that it it's might be better in your in your neck of the woods or, or world uh, it could mm -hmm. be worse uh but it's probably not as weird as it is here yeah so if you if you don't live in the u.s this will be uh <laughs> we'll be exposing to something you probably are glad you don't have to deal with so <laughs> the uh the, the main thing about this is that tesla being a new car company had uh wanted to figure out how to get these cars into the hands of consumers. Pretty, pretty simple. They're making a product. They want to sell it to people. And in almost every other business, when you want to sell a product to a customer, you find that customer either over the phone, over the internet, via a store, via a distributor, via a reseller. Keep, and you could create a Kickstarter. You could create a Kickstarter in today's modern world. Exactly. And it's up to you uh, to figure out how you want to reach the customer and up to the customers to figure out what they prefer in, in dealing with you. And you get money from them and you give them a product and, and that's it. Unfortunately, with cars in the U.S., um, it's not that simple. Uh, the 
expectation is that you will go through what we have here called dealerships, who are an intermediary business that buys cars from car dealers, uh, car manufacturers rather, and they're the ones who sell them to uh, consumers. And so I wanted to unpack where the heck that came from, why it's still around, and what Tesla's doing to uh, cope with this. Um, so I guess maybe that's sort of how we can get going. So what <laughs> what um, what 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 was sort of the origin of this? Like when 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 abouts did this did this happen? Uh, if I recall correctly, this was at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, mm-hmm. I, was it the Ford? Was it Henry Ford that started this? Or um, I think it was actually GM. GM. Yeah, it okay. was GM. Yeah, there was a, a with a steam engine car. Oh, like, fascinating! They did. They didn't even have fully. They hadn't figured out what the fuel type would be, but they figured out the sales model. <laughs> well, um, there were electric cars way back in the day, like before the, the gasoline engine. I mean, maybe we could do a whole episode on on that and how the uh, the, the battery technology just wasn't there. Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, if you th- if you thought the EVs in 1990s were poor, think about the 1890s. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I guess it was the early 18, or I guess the late 1890s, um, there were some of the first uh, car dealerships established. And these were co- people who bought cars from, from GM, from Ford eventually, and they decided to sell them to their local communities, similar to a general store where you might buy lots of different products and sell them to your community at a slightly higher price. And so, and I thought it was interesting that before this too, it was cars were, were being sold. This wasn't the beginning of the sales of cars, mm-hmm. but they were being sold through, I think like department stores and there was like traveling salesmen and presumably yeah, like you, you could go into a general store and, and purchase a, a contract for a car or something and, yeah, exactly. and have it delivered. It would show up later, uh, mail order, um, Sort of in the in the Sears Roebuck style, uh, yeah. So there were lots of different, and and there were the car manufacturers themselves were selling it. But what they ultimately found was that they the car dealerships, uh, sorry, the car manufacturers wanted to focus on manufacturing. It was a, a new industry, and um, they they needed to keep getting better at that. And there were dozens and dozens of of car uh, manufacturers in those days, up to hundreds of them. Um, many most of them went out of business, obviously, uh, but. Many of the uh, the people who were uh, selling these cars also needed to have them, uh, you know, the buyers needed them to be serviced, and the manufacturers weren't set up to do that. And so it became this sort of cottage industry of people who would buy the cars from from GM and Ford and and, and others over time, and then uh, sell them to to people uh, and create what we know as the dealership. And what happened was. Uh, it costs money to build these facilities and to build all the buy all the tools and to buy the land to put the cars, and so these business owners went to the the OEMs and said, "Look, we are we want to have a real franchise agreement, and we want to have some protection that uh, you won't uh, give a franchise to my competitor who's literally going to be down the street because that will erode my investment." And in the interest of ensuring that uh, GM and Ford grew very quickly around the, the, the country, uh, the manufacturers granted franchise agreements. And, you know, many of us are exposed to franchise agreements every time you go to a McDonald's or a Taco Bell or something. And um, as much as it seems like there are McDonald's all over the place, there, there are uh, limits in those agreements as to where McDonald's could allow another franchisee to open a store, uh, to create a mini monopoly on that location. 
And so that was all well and fine. And those contracts are fine. And we do, I think we do pretty well with franchises uh, here. But uh, at that point, right, you know, it doesn't stop anyone else from opening up their own fast food restaurant. Um, so, so that's all fine. Where things really started to go, um, go, go unique um, and, and a little bit special were uh, when Ford in particular uh, and, and followed suit by some of the other manufacturers decided that uh, they were the all-powerful. By this point in, the, in sort of the mid-1920s, uh, close to the Depression, uh, we were really in sort of the big three um, auto, deal, auto manufacturers here, and they started to behave a little bit predatory towards their uh, dealers. And so all they real, the dealers were only protected by the franchise agreements, but what started to happen was the uh, OEM started to force them to buy certain cars that they didn't want uh, under threat that they would never give them more cars if they didn't. So they were essentially stuffing the channel uh, <laughs> with vehicles that no one wanted. Uh, they would uh, do things by like delaying payment, uh, not, not helping them with any of the marketing fees, and really um, being quite rough on these very small businesses. And so it was a very asymmetrical power dynamic. And there weren't many other options uh, for vehicles. And, and both all three of the car companies were doing this. And so the, uh, the, these small businesses got together and uh, started lobbying for protection uh, to protect them from the dealers because one of the, from the manufacturers rather. And one of the things they really wanted was uh, protection that the deal the the manufacturers couldn't terminate their uh, franchise agreement because that was one of the other big threats was if you don't buy enough cars uh, we will terminate it and you know many of these companies had invested lots of cash to to build these dealerships and so that would be quite uh, quite uh, life altering if they were to no longer be able to sell those cars yeah that must really hurt your negotiating position. Yeah, exactly. It's it's not good to be uh, so locked up. And so, in uh, in the nineteen fifties, um, they went to went to the Senate, and uh, there was uh, some some testimony and hearings about this, and uh, you know lots of bad examples of Ford doing uh, nefarious things in the in the nineteen twenties, and um, and in even the uh, the FTC at that point. Um, was aware of these abuses and, and advocating against them. And uh, so eventually... Sorry, just to jump in for anyone outside the U.S., the FTC is the Federal Trade Commission, which generally regulates commerce, I believe, like products yeah. and commerce and stuff. Okay. Yep. Yeah, and, and consumer protection type um, right. issues. And so, yeah, the first law happened in 1956, uh, and it was the Automobile Dealers Day in Court Act. And a lot nicer. That was funner, the actual name funner of it. names. Yeah, <laughs> a lot cooler names back then. Um, it doesn't make a fun acronym. No, we were bigger fans of that today. Uh, and so it allowed dealers to essentially bring a federal lawsuit against a manufacturer who sort of went against good faith and wasn't complying with their franchise agreement uh, for canceling or terminating uh, or even re renew, uh, refusing to renew their franchise agreement. But then. So that was sort of the federal law, but then they realized they wanted even even more, and they could get it because uh, car dealerships started to become such a large um, 
This is sort of in the in the boom, right? The 1950s in the U.S. at least. This is really when the Interstate Highway Act was passed, and so many more people were moving outside of cities into suburbs. Many homes who had people who had never had cars before are getting cars. So car dealerships became very powerful in their communities. Um, they paid a lot of tax. They employed a fair number of people, pretty good paying jobs, and uh, they they contributed a fair amount to local politics. I and, imagine uh, if you if you're in a sales tax state too, that's probably one of the biggest sales tax payments most people will make in their lifetime is when they purchase a vehicle. Exactly. Yeah, I think 18 percent of many states' tax comes from car sales. Wow. Um, and so yeah, they're generally quite influential. Uh, and so they started pushing for more and more protections. And many of those protections, basically, t- they've gone to the point now where uh, a car company cannot terminate a, uh, a franchise agreement unless the uh, family member or r- person who's running the, the franchise commits a felony. That's the only legal reason for them to wow. be able to terminate it. And they pass through generations. So if you, that's why so many of these uh, dealers are family-run, family-owned, because uh, that's how they can ensure that they keep their franchise. If they were to uh, try and sell it, uh, the, uh, the car OEM could decide to not renew it. And so this has created a really weird dynamic where many states have more franchise and dealers than they need relative to their population. And then places like New York and New Jersey, which have way more population than they did in the 50s, have very few because they can't build new new dealerships because of the territories we talked about because those are still in place. And so um, depending on where you are, and Texas is another really big, strong um, dealer uh, state, they um, they essentially wield a great deal of power, and they started to create more and more regulation and push for it to, to protect them. And they have their own associations, and they contribute millions of dollars to state, uh, state legislature uh, across the country. And uh, yeah, essentially, we're now in a spot where um, you cannot sell a car unless you work with a dealer and Ford and you know, even BMW and all the, the third-party companies that are coming in from overseas now also have to work with dealers. And it essentially means for customers, you have to buy from a dealership. So you can't buy online, you can't buy over the phone directly, and you're not buying directly from GM or Ford or BMW or Audi, you're buying from a dealer. And it has a lot of uh, negative uh, consequences for, for customers and uh, has caused challenges for Tesla. Yeah, so that's why when you go to a car dealers or I'm sorry, a car manufacturer's website and you configure your own vehicle, it's never a final step of buy this car. It's I'm gonna send you to a dealership to to do that. Yeah. Um so okay, so just to uh kind of recap here, we've got the auto dealers. They are in franchise agreements with uh one or more um manufacturers. Yep. Yes. And that gives them uh whatever the negotiated rights are as far as like supply and vehicles coming in and payment plans. Um, and then also some sort of regional monopoly where Mm -hmm. they can guarantee that if you get a general motors franchise, that general motors is not going to give another franchise to someone within a certain number of miles in your area. So essentially the dealership gets a monopoly for selling general motors vehicles in whatever their franchise area is. Mm Mm-hmm. And these are all laws that operate at the state level. So 
these are there's 50 different sets of somewhat similar sets of laws governing all of this yeah like wisconsin was the first state to adopt uh very targeted automobile franchise laws and that was in 1937 and alaska was the most recent in 2002 so well, they uh, were really, really a holdout there. They were a holdout. Live, for, uh, yeah. They, they Live, were. Uh, hey, hey, that's not. Nah, I can't, I can't reappropriate that you can't one. Reappropriate sorry. our motto. You're right. Um, yeah, and so you know when these laws were put in place, the dynamic was quite different. Uh, the manufacturers were abusing their very powerful position, being you know one of three uh, companies creating a product that almost every American was trying to get access to and purchase. There was very limited competition for that product because there were three car makers in the US. And the uh, power of the people selling their product was quite limited in that they were mostly mom and pop single operators. Today, the world is quite different. There are dozens and dozens of car brands in the US. We have the internet. And uh, many of the car dealerships are multi-million dollar uh, some of them are even publicly traded billion-dollar companies uh, in in companies like Auto Trader and things. So these and would be dealerships that own many, 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 many franchises. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, and yeah, essentially, what's happened is they want to protect this monopoly that's been granted by the government, and um, they don't want de- they don't want the manufacturers to change the rules of the game um they're happy with that and they don't want the government to change the rules of the game and the manufacturers are are sort of held captive too because they are they are relying on their dealers to sell and push product so if chevy or ford or chrysler or bmw release a new product they can they can do some of the advertising but many many of the dollars have to go uh to the local dealers and some proportion of it so that they can advertise and um and so they rely on the dealers to, you know, buy the cars and uh, and do all these things. So they, they, they do rely on them to, to make the product go. And so if they were to advocate for changing the system, uh, you may see some of these dealerships who, who represent multiple brands start to stop showing as many Chevys or do as many test drives for Chevy if they find out Chevy is really pushing for direct sales, for instance. And so we're sort of in this stasis of um, nothing's really changed for the past 50 years. It's only become more calcified um, and and more and more regulation put in place to protect the the, these car companies, these these auto dealers. And, you know, it hasn't been that bad. um, And yet the economic impact has been uh, as we've now found out, uh, relatively large, is <laughs> really only come to a head now because there are a few new companies who want to make cars and sell them to people, primarily Tesla. And so it's really come to the uh, public discussion front because Tesla wanted to sell vehicles, uh, but they didn't want to use dealerships. So would you say that uh, over the course of the 20th century that the all of the laws and regulations put in place around uh, dealership franchises and, and that sort of uh, set of rules and regulations has leveled the playing field between the dealerships and the manufacturers, or has it actually tilted it towards the dealerships now where they have more of the leverage and the manufacturers are a little bit more beholden, uh, given that there are, I mean, for 
not only all there are all, all the uh, rules that are out there, but there's just more manufacturers now too. Yeah, it seems as if um, for many of the legacy car makers like the Fords and the GM, this actually became a problem in 2008. If you remember, um, the uh, TARP uh, legislation and funding was uh, so the, the U.S. government decided to uh, become a, a major shareholder in in Ford and um, sorry in GM. And uh, to ensure that they didn't go fully bankrupt uh, or out of business, rather. They went bankrupt, but they didn't want to go out of business. Yeah, I think they and, also for- leveraged the uh, sale of Chrysler to, I think, like an auto union and Fiat, I believe. Yep, yep, Fiat, yeah. yeah. And and so one of, the, one of the components of that that the GM uh, team brought to, uh, you know, the table as a way to reduce costs was showing that they had thousands of dealers that were underperforming that um, basically they were in areas now that were not as populous as they used to be, and um, they still have to send them a set of number of cars. Yeah, wasn't and it 4,000 across the U.S.? It was thousands, yeah. It was thousands of dealerships that they felt like they could get rid of that were, no, that were sort of redundant, unnecessary, um, that you know, with, with highways and with where people were living, people weren't really going to these particular dealerships, and yet they still had to support them and you know, provide them uniforms and all, all these different things, essentially, <laughs> and help them. And so they wanted to shut many of them down. And because they were now uh, much closer to the U.S. government, they thought perhaps they could um, get this this turned around. And I don't believe any of them closed. Um, and so that's, you know, I think that was definitely an indication that the manufacturers feel as if they are uh, hamstrung by some of these laws and uh, and don't feel like their resources are being best allocated and and one of the reasons why they feel like they're not competitive because when you saw Toyota and BMW and Hyundai and others come in they still created dealerships but they got to issue new franchises so when they come in in the 80s and 90s and 2000s um, they're issuing new franchisees and so they get to do it based on what the demographics were in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, not in the 50s oh, or so even in the 30s. They're operating under the same set of rules and regulations, but with a modern like map. A modern map and the ability to choose how many they want to, to issue, right? I mean, the, the ability of people to travel longer distances and, yeah, and just the way cities and suburbs have popped up and evolved the way the auto malls sort of work where there's like certain streets that have so many different car dealers. Um, yeah. So, and, and also, and also the idea that to your point earlier, that many of these dealers represent multiple brands means that, uh, they, that particular dealership doesn't have to invest millions of dollars, uh, up front. They, it, the marginal cost of adding another, uh, brand like a, a mini or a Subaru or a smart is much lower and so uh, they're able to get faster. The car companies are able to get faster distribution because they, they don't have to build an entire new dealership where you used to see sort of the Ford, Mercury, Lincoln kind of thing. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and you know, many of those brands have gone out of business. And so they're left with just the Ford dealership. And they don't have quite as many cars uh, to, to put on that lot. So, yeah. It always baffled me as a as a child growing up uh, in the 80s and 90s that uh, the American cars would have two exact same cars that had slight modifications. Like there was always a Ford and a Mercury and it was the exact same vehicle, but with that, it had a different badge and maybe some slightly different uh, 
I don't know, accents or something on it, but it was, it was just the same thing. And I, it, yeah. just, it baffled me that, and there was like always a Pontiac and a Chevy and they were almost the same. And it, it was just all very confusing to me. I, I never really understood why. Yeah, I mean, the 12-year-old Mike Demers predicted what would happen. Uh, <laughs> cust- customers couldn't tell the difference either, and so they went for the cheaper option, and these sub-brands didn't do very well. Um, yeah, I mean, that that badge branding sort of just points to some of the endemic challenges of, of these car manufacturers who uh, don't necessarily see themselves. It, it's almost as if they treat themselves more like consumer packaged goods companies, like a soap company than a, a product company. Um Oh, interesting. I was going to say they're almost treat. It seems like they're behaving more like a utility where it's become such a necessity for people that they, people cannot, especially the way we've built out the infrastructure in most of our, in the country here, you cannot live without a vehicle. And it, it almost sounds like this has become uh, like, well, kind of like a utility or, or right. some sort of pub, public regulated thing where there's a lot of regulations. There's all of these like things have attached themselves to it like barnacles to a ship or something where there's like a tax for this and a regulation for this and a rule for this. And it's just like kind of slowly like kind of trudging along until something, uh, until a speedboat comes along and eats its lunch to mix like five metaphors. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, like to your point, it's a, it's an extremely large industry. um, The latest numbers I could find was that the, uh, Dealers, and this is generally an appropriation, an approximation of how much they they sell. They did about seven hundred and thirty billion dollars in revenue. Um, so it's you know a rough approximation of all the cars sold in the U.S. Um, since there's not many other ways to buy cars in the U.S. Um, yeah, that the average dealership does around twenty million twenty million dollars in sales a year, um, but they generate almost no profit from new car sales. Uh, they used to a few hundred thousand dollars down to like fifty thousand dollars in 2006, but then in 2007, most dealers lost money on new car sales. So they're they're basically negotiating to almost nothing on on the new car sales side of the business. Uh, but they make a, they make most of their profit in um, service. So the average dealership makes a, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year in profit, uh, and and that's the majority of that's coming from from service. Uh, and so they they're very protective of of that uh small amount of service and uh they they don't really get that service unless they sell the car also um and so they sort of see themselves as this embattled doing good for consumers because they don't make any money on the car sales uh but ultimately when you look at the economics of it they actually are quite a large tax on the price of, of, of products, and yet their trade groups, unsurprisingly, uh, say that um, you know it's good for customers. Uh, we actually <laughs> create more competition. That if dealerships didn't exist, it would be a monopoly because the car companies would charge more. So, I don't know. What do you think of that? What do you think of that argument? That uh, uh, I think if they a- went away, the if they if all these dealers who are competing and giving you competition went away, what? you know, we'd be in a worse off. What do you think? I think it's a tortured uh, use of the word monopoly. Uh, maybe when there were three manufacturers, um, I guess that still wouldn't be a monopoly, but it would at least be, what, an oligopoly or whatever the... Yeah, oligopoly, so, there you go. Yeah, um, so you might have some sort of problem there, but, I mean, there are, what, dozens of car manufacturers nowadays, so the only monopoly that exists is the monopolies that the dealers have. Yeah, and I think the other challenge and and just wrong-headed economic assumption here is that customers will pay a higher price 
in in a competitive market just because someone wants to charge it. They sort of assume in their logic that the wholesale price that they're paying um, would somehow like that they would that the car companies would somehow be able to charge a lot more than what the dealers uh, end up charging customers. And I think it comes from the assumption that they get to choose what they charge. And it's actually the opposite. Customers choose what they want to pay in a market where there are lots of options, especially in cars where there's 20 or 30 car companies and multiple brands. And so the fact that there might be a single price for something, even if you know there was no haggling, uh, you know, the price of orange juice is not dictated by you know, Safeway necessarily. I mean, they choose a price, but people get to choose if they want to pay that price or not. And so they're, they're forgetting a very fundamental economic uh, concept that, uh, you know, supply doesn't get to set the price and only in very, very constrained situations, as you described, for a real monopoly. But there's really no evidence that if the dealerships went away today, uh, they would, the car companies would have a monopoly on cars they 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 would have a monopoly on their particular brand but every company has a monopoly on their own brand and so i think it's right. the myopic view that the dealership represents one brand that uh is confusing them and i think they are as mark twain would say do never listen to a man whose job it is uh who, whose job relies on him uh, not believing something <laughs> yeah it's i mean ultimately right they're they're not doing this as as some sort of giant volunteer effort right they're making profit they're making money they're supporting their business they're supporting their employees and they're you know taking some profit out of this so that money is coming from somewhere it's a it's a tax on the on on the transaction between the manufacturer who's making the car and the ultimate end user who's driving away in it yeah and the other thing is in their in their in their fighting to uh hold up these laws they they fear that pricing competition would happen if they allowed new entrants and so they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth <laughs> on one one side they're saying this helps ensure that prices stay low and on the other hand they're saying if the regulation goes away prices they their investments will be eroded and therefore prices will go down uh which is bad for them, but good for customers. So it's really funny because they, they have to defend both sides because when they fight this legislation being repealed, they have to prove why it's important for it to stay. And the other thing they tend to do is they've done this, they've done this interesting contortion where Tesla's come in and said, look, we, we want to sell new cars. We have no franchisees. All of you dealers, go keep selling your Audis, keep selling your BMWs, keep selling your Fords, keep selling your GMs. We don't care. We don't want to make you have to change your business. That's fine. We are only asking for the ability to sell cars <laughs> with our own company. This, is, this has nothing to do with you. And yet they keep getting involved. And so what, what's weird about it is, as we said at the top, these 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 laws were really put in place to protect dealers from abusive powers of OEMs. And they're now trying to turn it into something where those laws are built to protect them, the dealers, from entrance. And that's just not what they were originally intended for. And I think why this is ultimately a very losing battle, because it is not in the consumer interest and it's not in the consumer interest on a layman's understanding of it, that there is a company now in the middle uh, who 
is charging more. But even if you're okay with that, just let the market decide. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt the market or consumers to have a direct model uh, in, this, in this world now. And so if it were true that dealerships were better for customers and better sort of writ all, then OEMs would decide to use them. Like if yeah. you remove the regulation, they would, if it were true, they would say, look, it's great. We don't have to build dealerships. We don't have to do any of the servicing. We rely on a third party to do that, who we have retail, we know we have agreements with, and that's the business model we want, the same way that McDonald's has chosen to do that. No problem. McDonald's is mostly all, uh, you know, franchise. Starbucks has chosen to go the other way. Starbucks owns the majority of their stores. Both companies make boatloads of money. (laughs) It is not true that one is better than the other necessarily. McDonald's can give customers a pretty good product. Starbucks can give customers a pretty good product. That they're not, that one does not require the other to not exist. And yet they fight as if they have to. And so Tesla is really trying to come in and say, look, let us sell cars. And if we go out of business, which you hope we do anyways, we'll do, we'll do it on our own. We don't need your help to stop us. And so I think that's the thing that's just so infuriating from a business <laughs> point of view and just like a, oh, we, we don't need to protect these dealerships. Why are they getting this protection and subsidy essentially from everyone? And Uh, There are still many, many states, Michigan, West Virginia, Virginia most recently, Ohio, like there's so many states that are still limiting Tesla from opening Texas, from opening stores because the dealership associations have kept pushing to prevent them from uh, getting access and changing, changing the law most recently to change like the letter of the law the literal letter of the law like there was there was a very recent one in in michigan where it was saying something like if you are to open a new store uh or sell cars uh, you need to go through uh the manufacturer and they they use the the uh, plur like the um the pronoun its franchisees and tesla was uh using that as a loophole by saying look we don't have any franchisees so you know this is irrelevant and so uh, someone went through and changed the its and they just pulled it out. So it said you have to sell through franchisees. <laughs> and it went to the floor and it was voted on and it was approved. And like this was in 2014, so only a few years ago. And, uh, and, and I think it was uh, the, the guy who is a senator in the state used to run Gateway Computer. So he understood direct sales but he just didn't have the political power to to revert it, and so they're still fighting this one. And this is just over and over. New Jersey, Chris Christie had uh, some challenges there. Well, you preventing... can't even pump your own gas in New Jersey. Oh, yeah, I mean, they didn't want anyone to open these things. They they finally have now let them open three. Many of the many of the legislations that have had to go through have limited the number that Tesla can open in a state. So they sort of have um, just punted and pushed the pushed the can down the road because obviously many of these states will need more. Um, more Tesla stores in three or four. Um, and uh, there's some states that Tesla hasn't tried yet because uh, they, they don't believe they have the demand there. But they haven't gone to the Supreme Court yet. They haven't tried to do too much litigation. And the few litigations that have happened, like in, in uh, Massachusetts, they've actually won. And so uh, n- none of the auto dealers want to take them to court because they're afraid they'll lose. 
<laughs> because uh, the the laws on their side uh, for for anti competitiveness and and consumer protection that this isn't a protective case for for customers. So most of these are just like carve outs in legislation, which is faster. Um, so yeah, it's so just yeah, is there, <laughs> it is it is infuriating. Is there um, have there been any studies as to like to put a this is kind of infuriating and abstract, but is there any sort of concrete number as to like how much of when I buy a new car, like what what is this costing me as a consumer? Yeah, I mean, it costs you about, uh, well, upwards of 30%, I think, was one number that you had uh, had had shared. And, and I think the, the most sort of conservative estimate that the FTC used and the United States Justice Department used was around 8.6% of a car price goes directly to inefficiencies due to the dealership model. Um, so some of those price, the, the, the makeup of that is around $2,200 on a $26,000 car. So around $800 of those would go from uh, improvements to matching the supply with consumer demand. So as we talked about, uh, the car companies have to allocate a certain number of cars to each dealer. And uh, they, don't, they don't make a car because you want it in most cases. They make it because they decided that's the car they were going to make and they send it to a dealer. And then it sits there. For 60 to 90 days before it gets sold on the good case and if no one wants it in that ugly brown color that someone decided to make then they're going to slash the price which um uh you know hurts hurts all everyone involved except for that customer which is fine but you ended up with a brown car um <laughs> and so that ends up raising the costs um because that that uh loss on that brown car is now paid for by everyone else. Um, so, so that's, that's a problem. The other one is that, um, having a lot of cars on your land, uh, costs a lot more money because you have to have a lot more, uh, space and you, you also have to pay, uh, interest on the money that you've used to buy the inventory. So if you like, when you drive by these, these car dealers and they have hundreds of cars on the lot, I'm just thinking, okay, dollars $40,000 times 100 that's a lot of money tied up in these cars just sitting there. And that money isn't free. Someone's paying interest on it. So the cost of, of the uh, interest is, is pretty high. And then you have to pay sales commission to the salespeople who are buying, who, you know, who, who are selling you this item that you really obviously already wanted because you came in to buy it. Yeah, but so, Caleb, th those are the people who really go to the mat with the manager to get you the price that you need. So, oh, my gosh. The, you know, they're a valuable ally in your, in your purchase. Yeah, so those 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 sales managers, those salespeople, uh, you know, who are working extremely hard for for you to convince you to what can I do to put you in this car today? That's around three hundred eighty dollars of the car price you're going to pay for their commission. They're not upselling undercoating as much these days, though. That was that was a big thing back in the eighties uh, and nineties. Yeah, that's true. I think I think that sort of got into the they're going to get you category. And so uh, the floor to, mats were always a big addition too back in the day. Yeah, they decided to move to the financial products of the, uh, the longer <laughs> leases and longer uh, loans. So, so um, oh yeah, yeah. That's, I'm assuming most of the money they make from new, new car sales is, is financing. That seems that's to be what the car, that's also how the car maker, car makers make money now is through the financing. So yeah, it's in, it's in both. And, and the dealers make money on that too when they push the uh, financing from the manufacturer. They get a, a kickback. So, right. 
Yeah, not, so, not unlike the mortgage crisis. <laughs> so uh, now that we've kind of gone through a, a pretty thorough airing of grievances here, um, I, I, maybe I, th- I thought we could even touch on a couple of things that are valuable in having, um, if not exclusive franchise dealerships, um, having car dealerships in a, in a local area. So I guess what I'm thinking of, there's, there's sort of two big things. Um, test driving, um, to be able to go in and you're making a big purchase, you want to actually get some experience with this um, vehicle that you're going to buy and having access to new demo vehicles to try out is, is a valuable service for me as a consumer. And then um, the other thing would be um, service, whether through um, like regular like warranty service or like if I have to take it in for a recall, um, obviously if I'm in you know, Georgia and Tesla's in Fremont, California, that's not super helpful. Um, so having some sort of local point of contact, I guess, for um, problems or even just like regular maintenance and stuff. Um, so those would be the two big things that uh, they don't necessarily have to. Um, I don't think if you are setting up a system with those um, to meet those demands that you would necessarily say local monopolies through franchisees would be the solution you would gravitate toward, but that is a, a thing that they are providing. Yeah, and and this those two are two of the biggest things also that the car uh, lobbyists will talk about. Not saying that you're shilling for the lobbyists, just that th- those are legitimate and they actually hold some water that, uh, yes, that the car dealerships provide a service in being able to test drive vehicles, to learn about vehicles, to touch them and feel them, that if they didn't exist in their view, people wouldn't have access to that service. And that when there's recalls, when you need your oil change, when you need something fixed, uh, you go to your dealer and they're providing a service by, by doing that. And so both of those take a lot of money and investment and so they want to be compensated for that. And they sort of have said, well, if you let anyone do that, then our investment will be eroded okay like <laughs> if i open a re- yeah exactly if i open a restaurant i would love it that uh the the price that i invested in my kitchen and my my new dining room were protected for infinity uh <laughs> well, but someone just... else can open a, a, a restaurant right next door that doesn't mean i have the right to it uh but sorry so anyways <laughs> so, so there are two um Two two economic concepts that uh, that cover those two ideas. One is a uh, is is actually called the holdup problem, and the other is uh, aptly named the free rider problem. So the holdup one uh, would be that the investments that they're making uh, in the showroom, in the demo cars, and others are not being paid for in the world where I could buy my car online, which I think the holdup problem is most um, aptly thought of as showrooming. So the same way that local bookstores get quite PO'd when you go to the bookstore, <laughs> leaf through the book, and you pull out your smartphone and buy it on Amazon, you are uh, uh, exhibiting the holdup problem. And so in a world where uh, GM or Ford or any of them could sell the car direct, what they would most likely need to work out is for the service of providing the showroom, you would uh, pay uh, the GM and others would pay those companies some fee for providing that service to to people. Uh, that there are ways to create showrooms for products that are not sold 
in those particular areas. So wait, yeah, isn't that, that the that's the free rider problem? Oh yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, it's I think flipped. the holdup problem is the negotiating the prices of the cars um, and having the any sort of leverage in that negotiation. Where once you like you say once you have the dealership all set up, um, then you're you're in a very bad negotiating position for for vehicles and supply and stuff like that. Yeah, sorry, it's the competition. Yeah, so the, sorry, the holdup is the sort of limited access to options, and yeah, the free rider would be the test driving showrooming uh, situation. So, and, and in the, uh, in the, in the holdup competition one, they could still, uh, give you like a, a lot of companies will have a local, um, sales rep or, or local rep. And so even if they sell online, they will give some percentage of that to that local market, uh, as a, as a kickback, as a, as, as, a, a, as a payment. <laughs> exactly. For, for sort of running that district, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, smart people have thought through many of these challenges and, and, you know, figured out ways to do this. And, you know, one of the other things, too, is that um, we see companies like Apple uh, having, in 2001 or so, starting to do their own stores, where previously they were using CompUSA um, oh. and local distributors to sell the products, and then they decided to open up their own stores. And, you know, one, one of the things that the dealers say is, you don't want to deal with a big multinational. Don't you want to deal with a local company that has your best interest at heart? And hmm. if you need your car fixed, you can get it fixed instead of mailing it back. And, you know, it's as if they have never, ex- you know, experienced the Apple store. Uh, it, it is very possible to have a, a big company service a local community. It, it's not impossible. It just depends on you wanting to do it. So that argument is is really sort of foolhardy. And I think that Tesla has also shown that uh, the amount of service you want to give is determined based on your desire to give service, not on your geographic, you know, uh, headquarters. I think that's just a yeah. well, ridiculous statement. Especially belied by the uh, desire to kind of close down underperforming dealerships and in, in, in sort of uh, that we had talked about earlier. Um, but yeah, okay, so we've been going for 45 minutes now so maybe we can uh give any final thoughts here and then kind of talk about uh tesla's specific uh stores and their approach and how it relates to things like uh the apple stores and um maybe even bonobos guide stores if we want to really take it uh into that area um yeah yeah so did you have any final thoughts about uh about auto dealerships in general before we sign off I would just uh, end with a quote from the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, <laughs> As one does. Done, I've never done that before, but I think now is appropriate. <laughs> Maybe it'll be Re- a thing. Yeah. Uh, regulators should differentiate between regulations that truly protect consumers and those that protect the regulated. We hope lawmakers will recognize efforts by auto dealers and others to bar new sources of competition for what they are, expressions of a lack of confidence in the competitive process that can only make consumers worse off. Man, that's a... That's that's scathing. Rap. Yeah, that is scathing. There, they clearly haven't gotten enough regulatory capture going on there. Too much. I mean, yeah, no, the FTC is quite safe from the regulatory capture <laughs> of the automakers. Uh, it's the state <laughs> legislators that have been captured, uh, which is a fun term uh, that you don't get a, don't get to read enough unless you uh, you dig into these sorts of uh, cronyism type things. So, regulatory capture is the uh, phrase of the day. Um, <laughs> I would say for all so, of your public policy entertainment. Yes, if you search regulatory capture, you'll find reams and reams of uh, terrifying and scary documents. Um, but yeah, so so next week, so I think we've I think we have quite uncovered 
some of the challenges that uh, dealerships present. We didn't get too much about what Tesla's done, so that's what we'll focus on next episode is what has Tesla done since 2008 when they opened their first uh, gallery in Los Angeles? Where are they at now? And what is the experience of buying a vehicle at a Tesla store slash gallery? Uh, so I like we the, have, uh, these two-part episodes mean we, ha- we kind of attach a little teaser to the end. It's, it's, kind of, it's very professional. Uh, yeah, I mean, unintentional. We're not professional broadcasters. Uh, well, it just now you're so ruining happens. the illusion. No, it's fine. It just so happens that we have a lot to say on a lot of these topics, and we still have uh, potentially a year until the Model 3 arrives. So um, <laughs> there's, there's still many weeks to, uh, to fill the ear holes of, of everyone listening. And um, See, now, yeah, now having a recap of season one of HBO's Westworld doesn't seem like such a bad idea, does it? I know. I mean, we should have an after show, but uh, I, sur- I was recently searching and I found there were dozens of Westworld podcasts. So I don't think they need to. I don't think we need another uh, competitive Westworld. Well, podcast. we need to just talk to HBO and get a franchise for our local listening area. That's true. And then we will be protected for the Palo Alto, San Francisco, San Mateo area. <laughs> that w- that's what we need. We need to lobby for that. And then step podcast three regulation. <laughs> step three profit. All right. That one we haven't figured out yet. That's that's very true. Okay, so if people have any uh, any uh, if you oh geez if you work for a, an auto dealership or if you have any inside, don't contact us. Well, no, I would love to hear uh, actually like what the take from the inside is. Um, that would be very mm. interesting. Um, so the insider. Yeah, yeah. If you want to like blow a whistle, then we're probably not the right people to talk to. But you know, you can send. We it can point us. you in the right direction. Yeah, exactly. We're we're nothing if not. Uh, willing to listeners do that. yeah yeah and and now also we have a uh we have a new private way to message us um we we added a submission form onto the website which a few listeners have found and sent us some really great notes which we can't share because they were private but we've read them and we've quite appreciated them uh and some of them might lead to future episodes so you know tease number two of the night um but yeah you can contact us on twitter at the tesla show we love hearing from you you can uh, follow us on Reddit and converse with us on Reddit at r slash the Tesla show. And you can find the episodes and comment and contact us at the Tesla show.com on the internet at large. <laughs> and find and the aforementioned secret new uh, feedback contact form. us form. Yeah. Yes. And, um, you know, subscribe to the podcast if you're a new listener. And we'll be back uh, probably, I think we'll be back next week, right? I believe so. Oh, wait. All yeah, right. we're coming up to... Uh, we're coming up. I think we'll be okay. The 18th, I think we'll be okay. Yeah. Something like that. We can. Maybe that'll be our, our that last one be our before last our holiday one. break. Yeah, we'll probably do one more episode. We'll follow it. We'll do this one, and then we'll, we might take a, a little break. Um, but, but we'll be back in the new year for sure. So we've got probably one more episode, everyone. So all right. with that, talk to you later, Mike. Yeah, just remember, hell is empty, and all the devils are here. These devilish... En- oh, darn it. <laughs> These violent delights. No. That's it. Nailed it.